thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 159, Pyrrhic Victories. Last time, Army Group South, with the support of the SS, attempted to take Rostov on the Don, but failed, as Soviet forces built up in the area, hit their northern flank, and pushed the invaders back to the west. This was the first true reversal of the Wehrmacht, and Hitler was shocked, but mostly angered. General Rundstedt, Army Group South's commander, was fired on the spot, replaced by General von Reichenau. It was now his turn to crack the nut that was Rostov, after winter clothing and reinforcements showed up, of course. As for Army Group Center, the force that had two panzer groups, it, along with its SS help, took town after town, crossed river after river. Their successes were amazing. Their prisoners were in the hundreds of thousands. But having crossed the Dnieper, there were still some 400 miles, or 643 kilometers, from Moscow, and the fighting that had just ended saw the deaths or the woundings of 1,663 SS troops. Victory was coming, but at a high price. As such, there was talk in Berlin. What was the next move? For clearly, Army Group Center was in need of rest. But that would give the enemy time to move troops around. Even now, Army Group Center was dealing with regular Soviet counterattacks east of Smolensk. Most of Hitler's generals wanted to allow the men to rest anyway, and then push on, before the weather turned even worse. But Hitler believed he had an inspiration, something to hurt the enemy that would, in time, bring Moscow within their grasp. His suggestion was to move against the industrial centers of the Donitz Basin in the eastern Ukraine. This would allow for forward movement, but also put the troops closer to the oil fields near the Caucasus Mountain, below Rostov, as we have seen where Army Group South was having its own issues. Moreover, when word came that, despite the Wehrmacht's staggering successes thus far, many enemy troops had not yet left the Kiev area, probably, Hitler guessed, on Stalin's orders. This was another reason to follow his instincts. If his plan was acted upon, they could have another massive encirclement of enemy troops, and Stalin's oil fields would be threatened, which would cause Moscow to redeploy troops to counter that threat. It was an old military tactic to have the enemy reacting to you, so they could not implement their own plans. Not surprisingly, Hitler carried the day. Guderian and Kleist's panzer groups, currently on loan from Armour Group South, would be used in this action. The SS Reich Division was placed with Guderian's panzer group, and they took off to the southeast. Behind them, with the rest of the division, was the SS Der Fuhrer. The Soviets tried stalling this second part of the division, not only to create a gap in between the armored tip and the balance of the division, but also to allow their comrades, who had not left the area, to retreat east. Here, at the river Desna, about 250 miles north of the Black Sea, men of the SS de Fuhrer showed their courage and resolve in crossing the bridge there, then removing the demolitions about to go off. This allowed the still relatively fresh Deutschland Regiment to cross over and drive on, 
until they reached the panzers of Army Group South. Another encirclement had been achieved. This time, some 600,000 Soviet troops were cut off and of no use to Stalin. With another large section of the Eastern Front now behind the German lines, Himmler's men came to the fore. Their targets? Mainly the millions of Jews of the Baltic states, already conquered, but now also Belarusia and the Ukraine. Yet Himmler, seeking military glory and honor, had his men go after the anti-partisans that were giving the three army groups no end of troubles. Operating to the north and south of the Pripet Marshes, these units hunted down Jews and any who hindered the drives of Barbarossa. Yet, because this area was so vast and increasing each day, soon the SS was incorporating into this ghastly business Germanic peoples from northwestern Europe, Latvia, and other conquered regions. As for the Pripet Marshes, that too was given to Himmler's SS to clean up. Chosen was Obersturmbannführer Hermann Fiegelin's SS Cavalry Brigade. When these horsemen penetrated the swampy area, they found few legitimate anti-partisans. These people were simply getting on with their lives, living almost in their own world. So Figeling's men focused on the Jews there. The order concerning them was equally simple. All Jewish men were to be shot on the spot, and the women and children were to be driven into the swamps and drowned. The cavalry brigade did as they were told and stayed in the area until about September of 41 when they were ordered out. Still, by that time, the SS men had killed some 23,700 Jews. Getting back to the army groups, during the late summer and early fall, they had pushed on, and it seemed, for all of their struggles and loss of comrades, they were about to achieve Hitler's dream of taking Moscow. Operation Typhoon started on October 2nd, and one Soviet town after another fell to the mad dash of panzers. Guderian's 2nd Panzer Army took Bryansk, 200 miles southwest of the capital. The 4th Panzer Group, working with the 3rd Panzer Army, encircled another 500,000 enemy troops at Vyazma, 75 miles from Moscow, on the main road from Smolensk. With that, the Reich and 10th Panzer Division were able to take Gatst, which put them just inside the outer line of the Soviet Moscow's defense position. Victory seemed right around the corner, which is perhaps why, when things like the SS 11th Infantry Regiment had to be disbanded because it had so few men left, was not thought over too much. Or when Paul Hauser, commander of Defira Regiment, came to the front to see how his men were doing, a Soviet tank put a shell close enough to him to make him lose an eye. As such, he was removed from command, but was told he would be serving as the new SS Panzer Corps leader when the time came. Hitler was already making plans for another expansion of his beloved Waffen-SS. Wilhelm Wittrich became the new commander of Der Fuhrer. By November 17th, the cold was enough to freeze the mud and allow Typhoon to continue. And in the fight this time would be the Nebel Weffer rocket launchers. 
Nebel Vefer means smoke mortar, but this title was just a trick to fool the observers from the League of Nations. There were two types taken in to the early stages of Operation Barbarossa, the 28-centimeter and the 32-centimeter. The first one used high explosives, and the second used incendiary rockets. Yet their range, only 2,200 meters or 2,400 yards, was not as effective as the Soviets. Still, it was nice to have them helping as the Germans moved closer to the enemy capital. The good news was that this latest offensive was making progress. The bad news was that, through prisoners, the Germans found out they were facing fresh veteran troops from Siberia. Stalin was finally listening to his advisors when they said that Japan would not strike out against the USSR, despite their rivalry and open hatred. With that, thousands of experienced men were brought home from the Far East. The mixed news for the Germans kept coming. On November 25th, the SS Reich Division had reached Istra, only 25 miles from Moscow. But there, at its entrance, was the New Jerusalem Monastery, built in 1685. Old, perhaps, but it had towers and 16-foot-high walls, and all throughout now were Soviet troops. Again, proving their worth, the men of the SS Reich got inside the monastery, pushed back the troops defending it, and pushed them all the way back into town. The fighting was about to start up again when the Red Troops were ordered to leave the area as Panzers of the 10th Panzer Division was about to come up behind them and trap them. Yet the word division here is subjective, as there were only 28 tanks left still operational for the Germans. As for the companies of men supporting those 28 tanks, each company was down to 30 or so men. A Pyrrhic victory, indeed. Still, the way was clear. Thus, the German troops near Moscow prepared for the final battle. Yet a brief rest was allowed, as the men were still in their summer uniforms and dealing with the conditions. And on November 29th, the assault was started anew. The men of the SS Reich and the tanks of the 10th Panzer, now a well-oiled machine, worked together to reduce nearby threats and moved forward. By December 4th, the suburb of the capital, Lenino, was entered and occupied. But it must be said, the 10th Panzer was now down to only seven tanks. Still, the Reich's motorcycle battalion came upon a terminus of the Moscow train system, only 12 miles from the heart of Moscow. Also, the Deutschland Regiment soldiers could make out the Kremlin Towers. But then came the fall from grace. Two days later, December 6th, all were ordered to fall back. Army Group Center, it seems, was only a shell of its former self and simply unable to go on any further without destroying itself completely. The Deutschland Regiment's new commander, Bitrich, acting on orders from his superiors, told his men to move back to Istra. But then, Berlin became more aware of the magnitude of the Soviet counterattacks heading for Army Group Center. So the men were told, on December 21st, to move back even further to the Ruza Line, about 40 miles west 
from where they had been. The men's pride hurt. They grumbled as they left. But they were soon too busy fighting off a series of counterattacks to worry about their pride. With things thus, the overall situation of the Eastern Front could be looked at like a mathematical formula. The Germans had made it to Leningrad, Rostov, and Moscow. Yet a large subtraction must be made as they were at the end of their tether. For the Soviets, they had lost much of the European section of their country, but had at this point built up a large strategic reserve and were currently using it on the invaders. Moreover, Germany could never hope to match the Soviet Union in its economic potential, which was still possible, as Stalin made sure Russia was still in the fight. Nor could Germany match its population in terms of the number of men and women of fighting age. But the two aces up Stalin's sleeve would determine all. First, that Germany, or rather Hitler's plan, of kicking in the door to let the whole rotten structure collapse had not happened. In military parlance, to destroy all Soviet forces west of the Divina Dnieper line, and this was done, but there was always more Soviet defenders to face. As General Holder wrote in his diary back on August 11, 1941, at the outset of the war, we reckoned with about 200 enemy divisions. Now we have already counted 360, and more were to come. And this was before the Siberian troops were brought west, for Moscow had found out, through its impressive spy system, that Japan was about to attack Western interests in the Pacific, including possessions of the United States. One has to wonder, did Stalin bother to tell the U.S. about this, as he was, by the end of 1941, receiving Lend-Lease material. Stalin's second ace was the aforementioned goods coming from the U.S. and Great Britain. The numbers of material coming over was impressive, but as a percentage of what Russia could produce on its own, they were much smaller. Still, it showed that the three countries were certainly of a mind that they were all against Germany, and after Pearl Harbor, when Hitler declared war against the United States, it was all over for Germany, but going through the motions. The math simply was against the Axis powers. On December 5th, Stalin launched his great counterattack along the entire eastern line, but gave Army Group Center special attention. In reaction, the German field commanders on the scene had their men move back to more favorable positions, without consulting Berlin. When Hitler found out, he ordered for all units to stand their ground, and then, still raging against the professional military men, began another series of sackings that included Army Group Center Commander Bach, Guderian, and two other high-ranking commanders. As for von Braulich, the commander-in-chief of the German army, he had already been pushed aside, with Hitler taking his responsibilities. As the Soviet counteroffensive raged on, the Germans lost more men, but so too did Stalin. By the end of December, the Soviet troops were spent, and themselves, in need of a rest. A relative stability came over the front, 
attacks were made, but they were now more exploratory than definitive. By now, Hitler had lost more than 900,000 men, and of those, some 38,000 were SS troops. But his forces were just outside Moscow, and no one, not even General Winter, could stop spring from coming. The men would be rusted, replenished, at least to some degree, and then launched again. But now was the time for Hitler's battles against his own generals. He thought little of them, and more, of his own abilities, as his halt order had stopped a retreat that may have been pushed back for hundreds of miles. Yet it was the SS divisions, their leaders and their troops themselves, that were still in Hitler's good graces. Not only was he grateful that he had given Himmler his head when the latter had asked for mass expansion of the Waffen-SS, but now he would say yes again to bringing German youth into the SS structure. In 1942, the country's youth would be put into two new Panzer-Grenadier divisions. The young men were already in Germany's labor service. Now they would be participating in the war which is where they would have ended up anyway, in time. Only now, Himmler laid claim to them. During 1942, these two new divisions were created and filled, to which Himmler asked for, and received permission, to form an SS Corps system. It was heady days indeed for the SS, as long as one did not look at their casualty lists of the Eastern Front. From there, Hitler showered praise on his Liebstandarte and its commander, Sepp Dietrich. Things being what they were in Hitler's Germany, soon everyone who wanted to please Hitler praised Dietrich. As the worst of the winter set in, the SS were able to rely on their other duties, as in killing off or arresting entire villages, to grab clothes and other winter goods, to send to their comrades at the front but the numbers of items were never enough to meet demand. As for the Wehrmacht, their winter clothes came a little later, after the worst of the winter had passed. Then fate stepped in for the various SS divisions. First, the Waffen-SS divisions were told they were being upgraded from motorized to Panzer-Grenadier divisions. Now all the infantry would be carried in trucks or half-tracks, making them a truly mobile force. Then the Liebstandarte heard that they would be getting a new tank battalion, but it would be manned, as it were, by members of the Hitler Youth. This would be designated the division's 5th Battalion, but the only fully manned one. That would change in time. But in the late spring, as the offensive was about to get underway, Hitler pulled the Liebstandarte and sent it to France for, quote-unquote, reorganization. The men of the Lieb were overjoyed. As for the Viking division, just north of the Lieb, who had been pulled back during the attack on Rostov, they were hit by Soviet counterattacks. But again, the more intense fighting was closer to Moscow. In mid-January of 42, a Soviet offensive near Kharkov, a few hundred kilometers to the northwest of the Viking, was achieving breakthroughs. In response, several battalions from different units were sent to plug this gap. 
One of those sent was the Germania's 1st Battalion. It was put with a battery of artillery and an assault gun crew. But these German units were simply unprepared for the number of Soviet tanks that came at them. The Stug 3s were obliterated, and the Germania Battalion was practically annihilated, as the fighting went on until February 25th. The Germania would be remanned, but it was not the same. It would never be the same again. As for the Reich Division, it spent most of December strengthening the defensive works around Ruza, about 40 miles west of Moscow. But this was hard going, as the frozen ground did not want to yield to their pickaxes. The Defuhrer's Regiment was there, and like everyone else, spent their December days fighting off attacks, building up their defenses, and trying to stay warm. Fortunately, the Soviets gave up after December 24th and settled instead for long-range artillery bombardments. The Germans replied in kind. But in mid-January, the Reich Division was ordered another 60 miles west to Rzhevsky. But luck would have it that that area also became the focus of a major Soviet counteroffensive, which started on January 8th and would go on until the end of March 1943. This series of battles there would be labeled the Rzhevsky Meat Grinder, as the Soviets would gain little but lose just over two million men, dead, wounded, or missing. The Der Fuhrer and Deutschland regiments would gain the respect of their superiors, and grudgingly, of the enemy, by their fighting spirit. Der Fuhrer had the honor though it was down to 650 men, of being placed in a key defensive area. As such, they were visited by commanders, most notably the 9th Army commander himself, Colonel General Modell, who examined their dispositions, looking for weak spots. After three weeks of holding back the Soviets, Gruppenführer Klein Heisterkamp, the Reich's new commander, told Obersturmbannführer Otto Kuhn, the Defuhrer's commander, that the regiment was being pulled back, but he could be proud of its prowess. By then, February 17th, Defuhrer had lost another 150 men, and many of the rest were wounded or suffering from frostbite. Indeed, when they were pulled back, Kuhn was ordered to General Moldel's headquarters, and when the general asked after the men of the regiment, Kuhn told the general to look out the window as he had brought the able-bodied men with him. Modo looked up and quickly counted 35 men standing at attention. The rest of the Reich Division stayed at Rzhevsky to hold back the Soviets, but over time their numbers dwindled as well. Only in June of 42 was the entirety of the SS Reich Division pulled back to Germany for a reorganization. Fighting alongside the Reich Division had been Hermann Figeling and his SS Cavalry Brigade, those that had slaughtered the many Jews of the Pripet Marshes. Now they were getting a taste of real combat and fighting against those who could fight back. On January 17th, the section of the line held by the cavalry was hit by Soviet tanks. The horsemen panicked and found themselves unable to deal with this threat that fought back for once. Desperate, these SS men reverted to norm, 
by grabbing a bunch of Soviet POWs from a nearby camp and sent them to walk towards the tanks. The SS men were thinking, or hoping, that the Russians would not fire on their own, and thus the horsemen could escape or maybe use this diversion to attack. Either way, it didn't work. The tanks opened up and killed all those walking towards them. Not that Thigelin's reputation was tarnished by this. In March of 42, he was pulled back to become an inspector for mounted troops. By then, his overstrength brigade was down to 421 men. But like the other SS units, there were already plans in place to upgrade this brigade to a SS cavalry division. Next time, we'll visit Army Group North, and again, when the Soviets advance, the Toltenkov division will show its bravery and determination by not only holding up the enemy troops before them, but actually pushing them back. But to either side of the Toltenkov, this was not the case, which would lead to Field Marshal von Lieb, Army Group North commander, to ask Berlin could he pull back to straighten up his line. Hitler said no, and soon after, von Lieb was replaced by Colonel General von Kuchler. This meant that, seven months into Operation Barbarossa, the original three army group commanders of the war in the East were now gone.